0: This is the Child Welfare Information Gateway Podcast, a place for those who care about strengthening families and protecting children. You'll hear about the innovations, emerging trends, and success stories across child welfare, direct from those striving to make a difference. This is your place for new ideas and information to support your work to improve the lives of children, youth, and families.
1: Where's the beef? Well, That catchphrase from the 1980s has lasted, even though the famous commercial has passed its time. But what does a slogan from the fast food chain Wendy's have to do with foster care and adoption? Or better yet, what does it have to do with saving a state millions of dollars? Well, it's about delivering a message that sticks and understanding your audience. Welcome to the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. I'm Tom Oates, and today we're tackling diligent recruitment in a big picture sense, the systematic approach to recruiting, retaining, developing, and supporting a pool of families who can meet the needs of children and youth in foster care, which is not so easy because it involves huge outreach efforts to attract the families, but then to educate, engage, train, assess, and eventually license the families. And from start to finish, there's a huge difference between the number of families who show initial interest and those who eventually open their homes to children and youth in need. But what if you knew your audience? You knew them so well, those most willing and able to take on this great and needed cause. Knew them so well that you knew the exact methods to use and messages to craft to move them from interest to action greater than before. Well, today we're gonna hear about a different approach applied within diverse communities within the state of Florida, who are grantees within the Children's Bureau's most recent Diligent Recruitment Cluster. The Florida Intelligent Recruitment Program takes a page from Madison Avenue and the research that marketers apply to understand what makes you more likely to choose cornflakes over fruity pebbles. This time the subject isn't breakfast, it's foster care. We're joined by David DiStefano, Chief of Strategy for Kids Central Inc., a community based care provider of child welfare services in Central Florida and Florida's Fifth Circuit, along with Tori Wilson, an integration specialist with the Florida Department of Children and Families. Now, as part of their efforts in this grant, they engaged Keith Gold, a longtime creative director and advertising executive who worked on campaigns for Coca Cola, McDonald's, Federal Express. And yes, he was part of the team that created the Where's the Beef campaign. Keith's company worked to gather a deep understanding of who and what makes up the ideal foster parent and helped develop specific marketing strategies for those specific agencies to use. In our conversation, we talk about the approach, getting buy-in from leadership to try the new strategy, and also how it supported streamlining the licensing process, resulting in cutting the time to licensure, by nearly 70%. All right, so here's the meat of the show. Our conversation with David DiStefano, Tori Wilson, and Keith Gold. So folks, I want to thank you for uh, for joining us today. And David, I want to start with you. The idea of a marketing approach to recruitment. Talk to me about where that came from.
2: It's actually something that had its genesis about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, some work that I was doing in another state. Basically, we sat on that work for a while, and and when the federal uh, government originally came out with its diligent recru- recruitment approach and, and framework, we began to relook at that approach, uh, proposed for an early uh, grant round for the diligent recruitment, did not win that grant round, uh, but the client we were working with, Kid Central at the time, took that information, began working with Keith Gold, and we, re- re- over the next couple of years, refined it, uh, tested some implementation in the Kid Central area, And when this last round of of diligent recruitment, the DR3 came around, we went ahead and proposed again to really look at at taking a unique approach to foster care and adoptive family recruitment, Uh, much like uh, you open a browser and, and whatever you searched yesterday comes up as an ad on your browser, and if, if, if marketing companies can target me because of my demographic, my age group, my my income level, and tell me that, that I'm likely to eat Cheerios for breakfast, why can't we do something like that with foster parents? Look at the best of the best foster parents, what drives them to, to make those decisions to foster or adopt children, and use those demographic, psychographic, geographic data to, to drive our foster home recruitment.
1: Yeah, we're going to pull on that with, with Keith himself in a little bit to talk about all of that background that went into that marketing approach. So, Tori, you know, the approach comes to you and this idea is is brought in. How do you go about funding this kind of an effort?
3: So, as Dave was talking about, um, he was doing work with Kids Central, Inc., which is one of the community-based care lead agencies in Florida. Florida is a privatized state into these what we call CDC agencies. Um, And so, as he was speaking, you'll know they came up with this idea and they had approached some like-minded CBCs in the state who were also interested in approaching recruitment of resource families differently and interested in this idea of intelligent marketing. And then they really presented the idea to the department. Uh, And so in partnership, we agreed to go forward on this federal diligent recruitment grant. Initially, each agency had the resources that they thought they could take from their current funding, um, which varies from CDC to CDC, is primarily state dollars, um, and and with the intent of recruitment and retention activities for resource families. But they also, some CDCs also have other um, private donations and other resources as well. Um, And so they had each initially agreed that they had the resources to move forward with this um, and to fund the additional marketing activities that would be part of the grant. Unfortunately, then Florida saw a huge increase in the number of children we have in out-of-home care. And so then we did get approval from our federal project officer to alter our budget and to use some of the federal grant dollars on these marketing efforts. Uh, And so that's how it has moved and really gain some momentum with the CDC agencies being able to experiment with different marketing approaches.
1: And getting the idea of, of, okay, here's an approach that we like, we have a way to fund it, that's only a little part of the battle because you're dealing with something that's, that's different, that's actually you know, moving away from what's been done in the past and maybe what's been proven to work at a certain level. So talk to me about then, once the idea is there, and you can realize that the funding may be there, there's still buy-in from leadership to actually give you the, the thumbs up. Talk to me about, you know, kind of presenting this idea to leadership to get them to agree to to, to move forward.
3: Well, recruiting resource families isn't a new endeavor. Um, It has been a challenge for the child welfare system as long as it's been in existence. And in Florida, with the privatized model, we see our community-based care lead agencies really being experimental and innovative um, and really accessing research and trying to figure out, like, what is the, what's the secret, what's the right combination of activities, and nobody feels like they've hit on that yet, and so this was a new approach and another way to think about how you might recruit and um, do those targeted efforts to get the right families in their system, is very committed to having high-quality foster parents. And so figuring out how to recruit for more of those and particularly those who will take older kids, um, which then reduces the number of kids that you need to have in group care or congregate care, uh, which then ultimately saves your system money. And so some of it's a return on investment concept in that. If you have the right mix of foster homes up front, it does save your system money. So it is a worthwhile investment.
1: What were kind of those initial questions that leadership was asking you when when this you know this this approach was being presented to them? What were their kind of big questions, and they were really either concerned about or wanted to make sure that you guys had answers to?
2: When we started the project. Um, there was a number of lead agencies that were excited about participating in it and wanted to participate in it. Unfortunately, because of the limited number of dollars, we had to uh, limit the number of participants in the project. And we really started by selecting uh, um, those lead agencies of, of differing uh, geographics, demographics. Uh, an organization from the north side of Florida, which is is, is a lot more... Uh, rural bible belt uh, type of a type of environment uh, a couple organizations from central Florida and then originally one from southern Florida a very urban area unfortunately due to some changes in their circuit they've uh, since left the grant project but the original concept was to really look at at different geographics and demographics across the state and see what drove foster home recruitment That concept in and of itself was enough to excite the, the, the leaders, the CEOs of the organizations to want to participate. And then uh, we were able to get the buy-in of leadership at the DCF level with this concept to say, go ahead and pursue this grant um, on behalf of the state on a statewide level with these partners. Um, so participation in and of itself was not a difficult thing to, to get interest in. Um getting it started, getting it up and rolling. Uh, it was a little bit different story as we got into the grant, but the initial startup, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of buzz around the state about it.
1: And so I want to bring in Keith Gold now. And so Keith, talk to me about your involvement. How did how did you get involved in, in this specific target group?
4: Well, we actually started um, doing a lot of work on various boards on a pro bono basis with uh, agencies throughout the state of Florida and beyond. Um, it's something that I've been personally involved in for my whole career. And so it didn't start off as us really trying to work on a federal project that was going to involve lots of partners or anything like that. It really started off as something that was more of a personal kind of mission um, for myself. and other uh, folks that are in our organization. We're a tithing company, so that's a little bit different. We donate at least 10% of our time and money and efforts to um, charitable institutions. And so, again, that's really how we first got involved with some of these agencies in the state of Florida. And as far as this particular project is concerned and really studying this uh, demographic group, We had a project that we conducted for Kids Central, where we were really looking at, not necessarily an older population of youth that needed uh, placement in foster or adoptive homes, but um, really just primarily foster kids. And in the Fifth Judicial Circuit of Florida, which is kind of a central, somewhat rural section of Florida, And with that, um, they wanted to find out what really um, makes someone an ideal foster parent because one of the things that we find in Florida is that there's a, uh, well, there's a great need for one thing, Um, but there's a lot of people that start to become foster parents or become foster parents for a while and then they don't necessarily continue over time. It's, It's not always easy. Um, regardless of the amount of love and passion and whatnot that you have for these children in need. And so we wanted to also find out for Kids Central, um, what causes the turnover. And so we asked them to give us a list of the best of the best foster parents that they had ever had in the history of the organization. And we conducted 80 one-on-one interviews with those persons to try to find out what made them different than everybody else. And with that, we found out that there were some different demographic characteristics, but there were also some different psychological characteristics among those persons. Um, and just a few of them, and, and this is something that uh, relates to the overall fur project, if you will, but they tended to be older, those that were the best of the best. They had raised their own biological children. They had a deep-seated uh, faith which uh, this really became a calling for them um, to help those that were in need, they um, had a higher than average income. um, So they were able to stick with it. They didn't necessarily have to have the funding to be able to care for these children. So there are other characteristics as well, but those are some of them. And so we did that project with the 80 interviews. We also followed that up with a statistical study um, among all of the foster parents that they had in their database to then compare and contrast those that we interviewed with the total population of foster parents. And we did find out from that statistical study that there were differences between the general population of foster parents and those that were determined to be the best of the best. We did another study that was a statewide study on case managers for the Florida Coalition for Children. And in that case, we interviewed uh, case managers that were deemed to be the best of the best by all of the CBCs in the state. And we went through the same kind of process, a couple hundred interviews, then we asked every case manager in the state of Florida to participate in a statistical study, and then once again we could compare and contrast those that were supposed to be the best by whatever you know definition that you have with the general population, and we found there were some differences. So with that idea, uh, a group of folks got together and we made this application uh, to get this federal grant where we could look at the foster and adoptive parents for older youth throughout various uh, demographic parts of the state of Florida, or areas that had very different demography throughout the state of Florida. So very rural areas, you know, very much uh, urban metropolitan areas and, and some that were kind of in between. And we took the same kind of approach Where we started off um, interviewing in each of the partners' geographic areas those um, parents foster and adoptive for older children that they thought were the best. I mean, and again, we let them decide on what they considered to be the best. Um, You know, we didn't necessarily pick those out. We used their own uh, criteria for that. And so with that, again, we found that there were a lot of common denominators, regardless if, if you were in a large metropolitan area like Miami, or if you were in a more rural area uh, in the Big Bend catchment area and, um, you know, towns that I, you know, I've never even heard of. So if you look at all those, though, there were those common denominators among all those persons. And some of those, once again, were that the... the Parents uh, raised their own biological children. They tended to be a bit older. They kind of felt like they had seen it or done it all. A lot of them had helper personalities where they were first responders or teachers or had been in the military. Um, so on and so forth, so they felt like they could deal with any kind of issue that was thrown their way. In a lot of cases, there are a lot of challenges that these uh, kids have just beyond the fact that they don't have um, their biological parents with them all the time. And so these were folks that you know were up for the challenge and they also felt like they had a great uh, calling to do this. It was part of their faith-based calling. And um, so all those things were very similar. But one of the things that we found with um, this population, with the Kids Central population, and even case managers, is that a very high percentage of all of these folks that are in this for the long haul um, and that are considered to be the best of the best had experienced some kind of abuse Uh, some kind of trauma in their life, or they knew someone who had. It could have been another family member, could have been a friend or a neighbor, um, but they had some experience with child welfare and they had some experience, uh, personal experience, with some kind of trauma. And so when we presented this, um, some of our initial findings for the Kids Central study, for um, the study that we did for the Florida Coalition for Children, as well as this first study, People in the room were all shaking their head. It was the sort of thing that everybody knew, but nobody had ever quantified. We looked at, for the FERP assignment, over a thousand different studies that have been conducted from coast to coast um, for decades. And there was not one study that ever mentioned this. And yet everybody kind of knew it. And so that was one of the things that came out of this. I mean, not only did we, you know, uncover some things that other people hadn't, but we also confirmed some things that people knew but um, hadn't really come out in a in a formal way, like with what we did here. So. Um, Sorry to be long-winded, but that's kind of how we got to where we are with this particular assignment.
1: Well, so you're able to really dive in and and actually construct or pull out the data that creates this persona for, for what makes... Uh, like you said, the best of the best, and then who are they going to be the most likely not only to accept the engagement, but then also really see the whole thing through. So you get these profiles and you understand that there's obviously differences like you uh, talked about in terms of geographic differences, the profiles from Northern Florida or Central Florida will look different or Southern Florida. So you have this information in front of you. What are then is the approach that you're providing these, these localities to, you know, alter their marketing approach?
4: Well, one of the things that we did in the one-on-one interviews and then also in the statistical studies is we asked people not only questions about themselves, but their, their habits, um, their media habits, where they get their information, um, what do they do for entertainment, so on and so forth. And there is a difference, in, and this is pretty well known, uh, widely known. Um, there are differences in a large metropolitan area like a Miami than there are in in rural areas, say, like Ocala, horse country. Um, You know, when we first started this study, a lot of the people that we ask, um, you know, how do they get their information? What kind of broadcast media do they listen to or do they watch? uh, In the rural areas, they hadn't even heard of Pandora. As a for instance, an extreme example. On the other hand, it was widely used in areas like Miami. And so you have to really tailor the way you're delivering your message based on how people are receiving it in these various geographic areas. And um, certainly there are things about their demographic profile that's different as well. So anyhow, even though the overall, overall message in general might be something that resonates with someone no matter where they are, the way it's delivered and the way it's received is quite a bit different based on where they're situated. So um, we really got to the bottom of in each of these little pockets, these little um, geographic areas, how they get their information in some areas, you know, they you know, they just get AM or FM radio and a community newspaper. And then you have large metropolitan areas where people aren't necessarily reading the newspaper much at all. And so that's not anything that we really uncovered in this. I mean, there's a lot of secondary information that's out there on this, um, but we were able to get it right down to the specific radio station or the specific newspaper or uh, lifestyle magazine or, you know, movie theater that, you know, they would be getting this information. in. So that's a big part of what we did. Uh, with a study.
1: So instead of that whole blanket approach, you've really defined the who and you've really defined the how. Talk to me about what you told those agencies about the what, about crafting that message and, and, and actually delivering it out.
4: That's well, a great question. One of the things that uh, we had to do to begin with is really understand the positioning of each of these different agencies, because if we came in with some kind of a new message that didn't look and feel like that organization, it wasn't going to be received very well. And so we had to kind of fit their personality. And the personality in a Miami is a lot different than the personality say, of uh, of an agency in Ocala or in you know Panama City or Tallahassee or wherever, so they also had existing campaigns that were running, and so we had to kind of integrate this with what they were already doing. Um, they couldn't just stop what they're doing and launch a new campaign. If they had a, it, it wouldn't have been recognized as coming from that local provider. So we had to sit down with them. We had to talk about what their existing campaigns were. We presented the research and together we developed a plan that was customized for their catchment area. Um, and so again, the, the plan that was originally created in South Florida was a lot different than rural central area, different than rural northeastern or, nor- or northwest. Western Florida. So had, they all had to be very different. Um, so with that plan together, we looked at the messaging overall. And so we knew those things from the research that were gonna resonate the most, um, but how was that spoken? How was that said? How is that communicated in each of these different market areas and reflecting the personality of that agency? So we talked to them about how this could be created. We actually worked with them on creating ads Um, that would fit uh, all of these various criteria in their marketplace, whether they were broadcast ads, print ads, uh, direct mail pieces, whether it was faith-based, you know, peer-to-peer kind of marketing or whatever it was, we worked with them on their specific messaging. And what we found out in the end is is that those partners that kind of followed this prescription that was created for each of them, um, they had a great return on their investment.
1: Were there any commonalities in terms of what you know the, the framework? Obviously, the messages are different and the medium is different. Were there things you said to, to them to say, "Hey, listen, across the board, here's you know, here's how you get your return on your investment. Here's how you get somebody from interest to actually action."
4: There are a number of things that are common. Um, one of the things is the message has to be very simple. Um, You know, a lot of times, you know, and and we're in the marketing world here in my company, but everybody likes to be very clever and come up with a lot of, you know, kind of out of the box kind of thinking and that sort of thing. And within the agency walls or within even the CBC walls, everybody thinks that's really exciting and clever and whatnot. Um, But in everybody's busy world, the consumer out there isn't necessarily understanding and isn't getting it. And we don't have the kind of dollars in a campaign like what we're talking about here to just make sure that everybody gets it regardless of whether it's clear or very clever or anything else. I mean, you're just kind of shoving it down their throat. And uh, in this case, we don't don't have that kind of money. We don't have that kind of repetition. So we have to make sure that anything that's said, it's really well understood. So number one is it has to be very simple. Number two is is that what a lot of people were doing is they were really looking at this from – the parent's perspective. What is the parent going to get out of it? And what they were missing is what's the child's need? And so in many cases, because of the way this had historically been done throughout Florida, focusing on the parents, you know, you don't have to be a perfect person to be a a perfect parent for this, which is a great line and whatnot. But what is missing is the need It's all about you. It's not about the need. And so when you look at a lot of other charitable organizations and and that sort of thing, it's about the need, whether it's something for the Humane Society or or you name it. What's the need? And the way we were able to quantify this is that in the uh, studies that we did, people said, yeah, we understand that, uh, and these are prospects I'm talking about in this case that we talked to, um, that had the right demography, the right psychological makeup, so on and so forth. They understand that there was a need in general. You know, yes, there are kids that need a foster home, but yes, there are kids that, be, that need to be adopted, but they didn't understand that it was right in their backyard and that it's right now and that it's urgent. And so we also had to make sure that we're talking about the children that are hurting, that have been abused, abandoned, neglected, and they're right there in their neighborhood and they need somebody just like you, somebody that's called to do this. And so, the second thing is really making sure that we're talking about the need, which is the child's need, more so than the parent's need. Um, so, it has to be simple, has to be needs focused, focusing on the child, the child's need, and it also has to be delivered uh, in the way that people in that particular market area are getting messages. Uh, like we talked about. It. And, it, and it's a lot different in one uh, part of the state than it is in the other. It's a lot different in one part of the United States than it is in the other. So those are the things that we really tried to make sure that everybody kind of stayed focused on. And um, again, everybody couldn't just drop what they had been doing before. They had to kind of work this into the campaign that they had. But what we found over time is this: as Um, the agencies have worked this kind of approach into what they were already doing, Um, it really is paying off.
1: So Keith just kind of broke down what he was able to provide. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the results you guys are seeing. So, you know, Dave, how are the numbers of foster families in those jurisdictions? What are they looking like after this approach?
2: Well, as, as Tori mentioned earlier, it, it's been an interesting couple of years in the state of Florida. We've seen a marked increase in the number of children coming into the system um, of all varying age groups. Um, as we've increased and enhanced our recruitment across across the different areas in the state, um, partners have had varied results. But uh, um, I'll focus in on, on Kid Central, the agency that I primarily do work with and for. Um, five years ago, uh, we're an area of about a uh, youth population of about 195,000. Uh, five years ago, they were able to recruit 35 new foster homes in a 12 month period. Um, those numbers have increased each subsequent year that we've been involved in in, in using this marketing approach uh, 55, 69, 70 some. This year, we hit 100 homes as of last Friday, this fiscal year. So it's been an exciting year. And quite frankly, that's made a huge difference with the influx of kids coming into the system. Um, we've been able to increase the number of older youth coming into care, and of course, that's our target demographic. We're really trying to get uh, permanency for older youth, and that starts with being able to have the right resource families foster and adopt the families for them at the point they come into care. We've seen a, a significant increase, statistically significant increase in the number of kids coming into care that are able to go into foster homes. We've seen a reduction of, of youth coming into care that are going immediately into group or congregate care. So that has made a huge difference for us um, across the system. The bottom line for something like that in in our area, with the increase of, of children that we've seen coming into care, this effort has saved us over $2 million in the last 12 months. Um, costs that we've been able to avoid because we've had these new foster homes, because we've increased our capacity of, of homes within our system and homes willing to take children of the age group coming into care and are ready and prepared and supported in their ability to care for those youth.
1: Man, you're just hitting on all the kind of the big bullets that when you're presenting what this could look like to, to to leadership, it's it's nice to see that actually delivering on those things at the level you'd like to see, you know, at least at the introductory level. But there's a part of diligent recruitment that also involves, you know, you're getting the interest and you're hitting the right families, as you talked about. But then there's that time period of keeping them within the process because it's it's so much to get the home studies and the licensing process. Has this helped in any way even though you're talking about a, a, a what we call an intelligent marketing approach so you're getting the right folks but what about the internal steps and processes that get from interest to licensure
2: you know that, that's a great question um, the marketing has increased the inquiry and, and, and I've told folks from day one of this grant and, and I think that's been this has been echoed through all the leadership of the grant you know we'd rather get a hundred inquiries from 90 well- qualified, uh, foster parents able to care for kids that that are coming into care than a thousand calls from forty qualified foster parents. So number one, we've seen an increase in the number of folks that are calling in that are that understand what the requirements of fostering are and are, are willing to do that with the kids that we have coming into care. Um, this the second piece with that is is we've also taken a, a complete look at diligent recruitment as a concept and looking at the at the customer service the. Uh, uh, looking for relative caregivers of a family's case file mining. And each of the partners have had some varied results and some different uh, approaches to this. Um, one of the partners has implemented some new case file mining looking for relatives approach. Their placement in relative homes has increased substantially. Um, other partners have taken a, a, a real close look at some of the the, the customer service aspects of, of getting Uh, foster families and adoptive families through the licensing and or approval process. Um, Streamlining those processes, putting new training processes into place. We've been able to get families through uh, training more quickly. We've been able to retain those families once they were through. We've been able to place children in those families' homes um, more quickly than we were prior to this project starting. And and overall, um, retention across the partners of, of foster families has increased markedly. Um, one of the partners moving from uh, about below the standard deviation in terms of recruitment retention in the state to leading the state in, in retention recruitment, um, which means we're not only getting better foster parents who are ready to care for the kids, we're keeping those foster parents longer, and that's important to us also. Um, mm-hmm. Through all the marketing pieces, we have to remember that that word of mouth uh, between uh, current foster parents and potential foster parents is still a huge, huge piece of marketing, and it's still a huge source of potential families, we can't capitalize on that and leverage that unless we can keep the current foster parents happy, well-supported, and satisfied with with the services we are giving them as foster parents.
1: And, and especially, you talked about something, and and Tori, I want to pull you in on this because what's overlooked, besides the the big dollar figure that that David mentioned in terms of saving money for the state, is that there was a growing need for foster families because you had a larger number uh, of, of children and youth coming into care. Where did that come from? Where is that change in, in the addition of all these extra children and youth? What's, has there been a cause to that?
3: Well, as a department, um, we have an entire team now devoted to results-oriented accountability and really trying to dig down into precisely what is working, what isn't working, and and what are Um, kind of your cause and effect scenarios. Uh, So we don't have all the answers yet, but we we do know um, around the state we have implemented a new child welfare practice model. And we can see as it rolled out, um, implementation of that correlates with an increased number of kids entering out-of-home care. Uh, So... Ideally, it's because we're more accurately identifying children who need out-of-home care. Um, That's certainly one angle. Uh, The other piece, which is true for Florida, as it is for most of the rest of the country, is that this opioid crisis and substance use and all the variations of your um, pills out there in the opioid world is having an impact. You know, we have... Stories almost every day of passed out parents found in cars with kids in the back seat, some version of opioid use, and so it is having an impact on our system as it is in other places.
1: And those are, yeah, those are those are the types of lessons that kind of you know cascade across uh, state lines. Uh, David, I want to bring you back on something. You talked about the customer service aspect, so. What were those efforts that changed to keep those those families engaged to get them licensed? I mean, you you, you talked about, you know, hitting the right families and, and word of mouth. But from kind of start to finish, what changed uh, from from, again, interest to licensure?
2: It was it was a long term year plus long project uh, that we worked with some external consultants uh, um, um, internally, uh, uh, brought all the best uh, um, minds together, so to speak, to really look at our processes and our procedures and the efficiency of those processes. Um, we looked at at how long it took to get folks from that initial inquiry into into a class. How long it took them to get to the class? Were there were there efficiencies or losses in, in class? Where we were people dropping out because they couldn't get into a class quickly enough um, or through a class um, effectively? And and in their mind. Uh, quickly enough. Why were we losing folks and why were we losing interest? Re- we started by revising those processes and, and, and monitored the outcomes related to that. And one of the major measures we used was the time it took um, from folks finishing their class, their, their, their uh, foster uh, adoptive training class, to the point they actually were approved and or licensed. And when we started this, the average time um was about two hundred and fifteen days from the time of th- of someone finished class to the time they were able to get licensed. through uh, process efficiencies, reducing what we, what we we would call waste in kind of a six sigma sense, um we were able to drop that to below sixty days. We had folks literally being uh, approved and licensed within days of them being able to finish their class and ready and supported to take foster parents. so so the that whole customer service approach right from the start, get folks engaged. Keep them engaged, keep their interest level high, get them ready quickly um, before they lose interest in what they're doing and thinking this process is taking too long. That was critical for us
1: well wow. reducing by like one quarter of the time that's that, that, that's amazing Tori did you did you kind of see this uh, across the board in terms of the, the the numbers that your your staff was looking to kind of you know, evaluate this process with were you expecting numbers like this
3: uh. No, not, not necessarily. It was definitely a decrease in what we term the licensing cycle time. Um, And one of the things we've had lots of conversations about, um, you know, as Keith was talking about the need for your marketing message to convey that there's an urgent need. One of the things we've talked about is that if we're conveying we have an urgent need, but then we take six months to license your home, you know, that doesn't stand up. (laughs) You know, we we can't make that case to foster parents that the the need is urgent and that it takes us so long to license. So it was very important to us to decrease the licensing cycle time um, to get those homes through the process and um, hearing about kids who need to be placed with them.
1: This is really, really interesting in terms of not only connecting. We talk about connecting with uh, the potential parents, the potential foster parents and hitting the community and then pushing them through the, the process. And I shouldn't say push, but really streamlining the process to, to walk them through it uh, much, much, much quicker. So this all sounds great. And we understand, though, that grants end. Yet you found ways to help out. Talk to me about long term. What does sustainability look like uh, for for this effort?
2: Well, I, I think that's that's you know something we're working on very closely right now, uh, spreading information, spreading the spreading the word, so to speak, about what what we've been able to do. We're just in our initial phases of that. But I think it's going to boil down to um really, and especially in this environment when you across the state of Florida, when you have lead agencies with fixed contracts who are who are required to take any child that comes into care. Um, the increase in, in out-of-home care has been quite a financial burden. So we really need to, in terms of sustainability, look at this from a, a fiscal perspective as well as a, as a satisf- family satisfaction perspective and a child welfare outcome perspective. So looking at kind of from a triple framework, so to speak. Um, from a fiscal side, I think we can show that, that the increase in foster homes has really resulted in, in a net cost savings in those areas that have been most successful. Um, we're working on the ties to child permanency right now. Uh, ties to child well-being. We can we can effectively say that that youth are in a more family-like setting at initial removal are more likely to be placed with families that improves child well-being. So from a sustainability standpoint, I think we need to hit on all of those pieces um, and really emphasize that tie to the permanency, the well-being, um, to really generate that interest and then and then frame it. Fiscally, um, But it's really, at the, at the end of the day, it's really about achieving permanency and the best thing for children and families across the state.
1: Yeah, and you also touched base on a sustainability aspect is word of mouth. You know, happy, quote unquote, when you're talking about customer service, happy customers lead to more happy customers. And so hopefully there's also that good feeling that you get along the way. Tori?
3: Well, I was just going to add um, that for us, when, when we're talking about sustainability, it's very important for us to make the case that um, using intelligent marketing is effective. We know across our sites that it has had a uh, result in a dramatic increase in inquiries from potential resource families. But then the other side of that, which you guys have both now touched on is the customer service aspect. And so that is the other piece that we're very focused on embedding into the systems now is making sure that systems are responsive to the to resource families, not only through the licensing process, but once they have children placed and they need support from case managers and others in the system, uh, that everyone understands their role in retaining those families and providing the supports necessary.
2: To build on a little bit of what, what Tori just said, um, you know, as you look at all the aspects of diligent recruitment and all the pieces that, that go into to diligent recruitment as a concept, um, you know, I'm starting to see a, a real hierarchy in in some of these these steps is it doesn't do any good to recruit families and, and get the inquiries if you can't get them through the process effectively. Um, it doesn't do any good to look for foster homes if we haven't first looked for uh, applicable relative placements. If we don't have the, the processes and procedures in, in place, the recruitment um, isn't going to be as effective or or, or um as impactful for our system of care. Um, So really looking at diligent recruitment as a whole has been um, something that that we've realized through this process um, is is important. You just can't focus on one piece. Um, As a matter of fact, as as careful as we've been um, at Kids Central looking at our processes and procedures and outcomes and monitoring and tracking that, the influx and, and the stress associated with putting and licensing 100 homes in a, in, a, in a relatively small area has strained our system and in our staff. Um, and that coupled with the financial impact of of, of having so many more kids coming into care, we've had to walk a very, very fine balance of, of staffing that process, making sure that we can have our numbers low, and, and we've seen an impact on the customer service side. And it's, it's the balance and managing that that's so critical.
1: That's that's a really good thing to think about in terms of you know it, the this this you know the victim of your own success, so to speak, in terms of being able to handle all that. But you know, David, you touched base, and Tori, you as well, about the growing number of children and youth that you uh, in the state of Florida were seeing coming into the system. And Florida's not alone in in, in those issues. So for other agencies, for other organizations that are hearing this and thinking, hey, this could be something we, would, we may want to test out. What's the, what's the one thing that you think you would do differently in this approach if, under the school of, if I knew then what I know now, what would you tell yourself back then?
2: I, I think looking back on it, one of the one of the struggles and one of the um, barriers that we had getting the project up and off the ground was, was the fact that each of the partners had existing collateral marketing material um, pieces in place and had to change those processes. That took us a little bit of time. And I think we would have been more aware of that and been able to try to incorporate some of some of those concepts into what we were doing to leverage what was already in place rather than, than recommending um, an immediate change in processes. It took a little bit of time for us to move through that. So that's something that, in hindsight, I would be more aware of. Tori, I don't know if you have anything to add to that.
3: Well, I would just add, and I agree with that observation, Um, but the other thing is that I do think, despite the initial hurdle of the partners having to kind of finish up their currently running marketing strategy, they were very invested in the concept of, let's try something new around recruiting resource families. Um, The thing that we didn't do a good job up front making sure all the partners understood was that this diligent recruitment approach isn't just about recruitment, um, Mm -hmm. that there is a lot more to ensuring that you're doing right by the youth we serve, that you're identifying the homes that will meet their needs, that you're building a system that will be supportive, that will result in permanency which includes, um, you know, some of these other child-specific strategies. It includes the customer mark uh, service pieces that we've been talking about. Uh, and so I think our project was slow to move towards an understanding of this isn't a simple approach. You can't do just one piece of this and be successful.
1: So, Keith, I want to bring you back in. And earlier you talked about, and, and, and Dave and Torrey just mentioned it, about those Campaigns that are already going on for all these agencies, they still have this marketing approach that they're trying to do in in their in their current uh, in their current activities. But for all those agencies out there and what you may have seen across the board in your studies through Florida, if there would be one piece of advice you would advise agencies to maybe
4: alter in in recruiting foster parents, what would it be? Focus on the needs of the children, more so on the needs of the parents. Um, Yes, I mean. You've got to satisfy needs that you have, you know, as a human being. Um, it has to fit with your life goals. It has to fit within your family structure. It has to fit within your belief system but we can't lose sight of the people that we're trying to help. And a lot of the marketing that's out there focuses on the parent more so than the child in need. And so I think if, any, if we can do one thing, it's focus on that child that is in need, that's hurting, uh, that needs a parent, um, a forever parent, hopefully today, right in their backyard.
1: Folks, this has been a great way to look at maybe a different way, though not a new way in terms of looking at marketing across the board and something that we're all actually a part of in our day-to-day lives. And any kind of piece of media that we consume, uh, someone's targeted us. And why can't that be done for for, for foster parents and for foster families and, and the kids in our community? So, hey, I want to thank Tory Wilson, Dave DiStefano, and Keith Gold for, for carving out a big chunk of your time and, and showcasing all this with... With us so folks appreciate it and thanks and have a great day one of the key reasons the marketing strategies put together for the agencies was so successful was that the effort they actually put into really understanding the audience now, that effort involved and you heard him mention this the number of hours spent interviewing caseworkers and foster parents Two or three focus groups can't equal the insight gathered from hundreds of hours of conversations. Now from all that qualitative data, many of the strategies just bubbled up to the surface. So you gotta understand, this was a lot of work. And also the messages, they were simple and urgent. You know, sometimes we wanna cram in all the information we have to help make our case or sway some thoughts, but the Florida Intelligent Recruitment Program kept messages clear and singular. Now, on the webpage for this podcast, which you can find on the Children's Bureau's website at acf.hhs.gov slash cb, just search podcast, we'll have links to some of the findings from the grantees involved in the earlier diligent recruitment clusters. We'll also point you to Information Gateway's web section on recruiting and retaining resource families, which has a collection of state and local examples, along with recruitment strategies and tools. So just head to the podcast page over at the Children's Bureau's website, acf dot hhs.gov slash cb and search podcasts. We'll have more podcasts on diligent recruitment coming your way, so look out for those. And as always, please let us know what questions or needs you have for supporting families or training in your staff. You can find us at childwelfare.gov or contact our information support services team at info at childwelfare.gov. Thanks so much for being a part of this community and joining us for this and all the episodes of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast series. I'm Tom Oates, and we'll talk to you next time.
0: Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Child Welfare Information Gateway podcast. Child Welfare Information Gateway is available at childwelfare.gov and is a service of the Children's Bureau, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Administration for Children and Families. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of Information Gateway or the Children's Bureau.